Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 174 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are very happy to be joined once again, returning champion, friend of the show, Paris Marks. All of you will know Paris for as the as the co as the host of Tech Won't Save Us, as uh, a big cryptocurrency and Elon Musk fanboy on Twitter, um, just always constantly posting that that shit about how much he loves Bitcoin and loves Elon Musk. But you know, in a, in an effort to reach across the aisle and have both sides on on the show, um, we're happy to have Paris back on again. <laughs> Paris, thank you for joining us. Thanks, man. Very happy to be back on the show to share the gospel of uh, our dear techno king, Elon Musk, with all of you. Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it, Paris, is it true or not that your last name is really uh, Friedman and you're, you're related to the Friedmans and your podcast is actually called Tech Will Save Us? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Actually, when you when you Google the show, uh, Google will will tell you that you've got it wrong and suggest that actually you might have wanted to search for tech will save us. Uh, because naturally that's what it actually is. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I, d- I forgot about that. That was, that was yeah. happening. Google search was actually auto-correcting to tech will save. <laughs> Amazing. I think it still does it. I haven't tried it in a while, but <laughs> uh, well. Well, the actual, of course, the actual reason, uh, as if we ever need an excuse, but it is always good to have an excuse to have Paris on, um, is his new book that has just come out. I think it will be out by the time this episode drops um, from Verso called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. So, you know, I've known, we've known, of course, that Paris has long had an interest in in transport, alternative forms of transport, critiquing the car-based infrastructure and society that we live in, um, which is, I, I believe, if I'm correct, the the real origins of uh, all the attention and, and close watching you do on Elon Musk is, you know, largely born out around uh, being a, a, a close Tesla observer. Um, I, I, I feel like, though, that this part of your 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 brand and your your analysis um, has has you know might come as a bit of a surprise to some people who now know you more as a a close observer and critic of crypto, um, all things blockchain, all things crypto. Lay lay the groundwork for us a little bit here, Paris, about like you know why 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 are you coming out with a book on transportation when I think many people would expect you to be coming out with a book about cryptocurrency if they're following your your timeline, if they're following your podcast. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Jacob Silverman and Ben McKenzie are already writing the crypto book, so <laughs> I'm not going to do that one too. Um, but yeah, you know, I... My my real start in writing about um, technology and and even just like writing, I don't know, freelance writing and stuff in general was actually writing about cities and transportation, um, and then kind of connecting that to technology. And so that was really what I started looking at. As you said, it was how I started really looking into Elon Musk, both for the Tesla stuff, but also for the Boring Company and the other kind of stupid ideas that he's had over the years around transportation. Um, And certainly Uber was a lot of that as well. 
and really, it you know, it came out of an interest in how cities are built, how cities are created, because I come from a place that is very car oriented and a lot of certainly North American listeners and Australian listeners will, um, you know, be familiar with that, of course, certainly people in Europe too, um, just to a lesser degree, I think, uh, to a certain extent. And so, yeah, it was really an interest in how our cities are created, how our transportation systems are created, why it's so oriented around the car, what the impacts and effects of that are, and how we were getting all of these kind of ideas for what the future of transportation should be from the tech industry in particular. And then noticing that like so many of those ideas didn't actually fix so many of the problems that we have in the transportation system or in our cities, um, but did promise to by saying, oh, if we just add some new technologies to these like pre-existing forms of transportation, everything will get better. And then seeing a few years later that things didn't get better. And in many cases, they actually got worse, but we still had this promise that kind of just kept being made. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like it hasn't fallen by the wayside, but I do think Silicon Valley has become a lot more uh, you know, like, like, like a kid with ADHD, you know, it's attention, uh, get, gets captured by the, by the newest shiny thing that enters its field of vision. And right now it's like, it's like full force on, you know, web three. So, and, and, and all the, umbre- all the stuff that falls under that umbrella, uh, you know, blockchain, metaverse, NFTs, blah, blah, blah. And then Bart's art, that's just cause, you know, Silicon Valley follows the money and there's a lot of money in that, but, for a very long time, transportation was the big thing that sil- was one of the big things that Silicon Valley outside of like, you know, just, just software as a service type stuff was really focused on like, you know, this is the real, real material, uh, real world disruption is the, is mobility, how people get from point A to point B, how goods and services get from point A to point B. I mean, this is the origins of the gig economy as well. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people outside of like, you know, urban geography or something like that, you know, really understand or think about the gig economy as primarily a mobility-based um, disruption and mobility-based transportation. But maybe you could dig in a little bit more about wh- what what is it about transportation what is it about mobility of goods services and people that captured and has for a very long time kind of captured the imagination of silicon valley but also um, been this area that they want to conquer and colonize and disrupt and own and so on yeah absolutely like and just to pick up on what you were saying like for a while, when you thought about Silicon Valley and what a lot of these companies were doing and one of the big interests that they had were linked to transportation, but certainly that was part of like a broader focus on like the smart city, right? And it's something that you've certainly written a lot about yourself, Jathan. Um, and really seeing that as something key that they wanted to be focused on because after so long, you know, creating hardware and software and and whatnot and being on kind of the um, digital side of things, really moving out into the physical world and starting to um, apply these technologies and put these technologies in so many of the I don't know, interactions that we were having in daily life within cities um, and transportation was one piece of that. And, you know, I think that the tech company's interest in transportation comes from many places. But I think one of the things that just comes out again and again and again, when you look at the stories that these people tell about the transportation system, why they wanted to get involved with it was really that they 
personally rely on the transportation system as well as everybody else, right? And they did not like to be stuck in traffic. They did not like to have to wait for a taxi to come or something like that. You know, the story of Uber is very much one that um, Travis Kalanick and his buddies were having a hard time getting a black car or a cab in San Francisco. And so they wanted something that would be easier, that would make it easier for them to get access to transportation, right? If you think about a lot of Elon Musk's more recent transportation ideas, particularly the Boring Company, very much focused on traffic, right? And the Boring Company really gains its existence because he's sitting in his car one time stuck in traffic and tweets out that he's going to start boring holes in the ground to fix traffic. And then like he turns that into a whole stupid business idea. Um, and so I think a lot of it is around the interests of these people, the ideas that they have for how transportation should work, but also the recognition that there is a problem with the transportation system and then applying kind of very naive and like elite ideas for how you actually solve this problem based on the way that they use the transportation system, which is in a very particular way, in a very auto-oriented way, instead of recognizing like the larger problems that exist in the transportation system, who is actually most disadvantaged when it comes to mobility and who has trouble getting around the city, the country, what have you, um, and actually addressing the real challenges that people face. But that was not of interest to them. It was really about applying these tech solutions to the transportation problem, hoping that that would solve it in a way that would benefit them. And in some cases, that has been the case. You know, if you look at who has actually benefited, it tends to be, you know, people who have a similar profile to your average tech worker, um, not, you know, the, the average person in a city or the most disadvantaged person when it comes to transportation. This as well. I mean, you know, I, I remember not that, you know, it, well, I guess it was a long time ago in our, in our kind of collective amnesia, but like, you know, like five, six years ago, um, a lot of the controversy in like Silicon Valley was kind of focused on the Google buses, right? So like these, you know, these private uh, you know, private luxury commuter buses for, you know, that were taking Google employees from, you know, San Francisco proper into Mountain View, um, you know, and, and using public uh, tra infrastructure to do it, right? Like the, like the public bus stops, the public bus lanes, like all of that stuff. And this became like a real hotbed kind of controversy. It became like a thing that people could protest because so much of what Silicon Valley does is like so intangible and well, at least seemingly intangible and immaterial. And so therefore like hard to actually protest. But, you know, in like 2016, um, Douglas Rushkoff, who's a, uh, you know, a, a very famous kind of media theorist and public intellectual around these things, wrote a book called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, um, which I think, you know, really just also crystallizes like, like that moment in time where there was a, a few years there where the Google Bus was this kind of, uh, the, this, 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 you know, this representation of all the things that Silicon Valley was doing in particular uh, to the city of San Francisco. So you've got that kind of urban, that city aspect there as well, um, while at the same time serving as a nice kind of like effigy for people to stone and, 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 you know, in, in, a, in a different world, uh, you know, throw Molotov cocktails at, not just rocks at uh, the Google bus um, as a way of like 
stoning and burning Google itself. So maybe talk talk a little bit about about that as well. And 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 uh, may, maybe is it is it because San Francisco has you know as, as in the words of the Atlantic and Nellie Bulls, you know, just become this hellhole uh, that and, and so people have <laughs> largely like abandoned the city. But like you know, you don't seem to hear as much uh, anymore about those kinds of protests and things that are really focused at these like these kind of elements of 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 not only luxury but like like real segregation and gentrification as represented by the Google bus. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of this in San Francisco, right? Like I think San Francisco is really interesting in that they have obviously been at the forefront of a lot of these transformations when a lot of these companies are launched, they hit San Francisco first, and so they know what it's like to be kind of experimented on by all of these companies and with their schemes. Um, I think like the kind of throwing rocks at the Google bus moment is like really interesting because it's not the only example of like people in San Francisco pushing back against these um, tech transportation, I don't know, ideas or, or companies or whatnot, right? Because there's, there's obviously attacking the Google buses. There are, are, is people who, um, like attacked the scooters when they were put on the streets. Uh, there's this really like cool photo of like a pile of scooters in front. I believe it's in front of one of these Google buses and it's like on fire, um, because people like hated the scooters, um, which I love. And then, you know, more recently, there has also been opposition to the like little delivery robots, like the sidewalk delivery robots and trying to get them stopped. And I think like the rollout of like the micro mobility, the dockless bikes and scooters is really interesting because I feel like kind of the narrative when they rolled out was like, this is a really positive thing. Um, cities should embrace this because it makes it easier for people to access like active mobility. Um, and San Francisco was actually a notable exception to that in that the public support for these dockless bikes and scooters was much lower there. There was an, an initial, um, opposition to them that didn't exist so much in other like American cities where these things were thrown on the sidewalks. Um, and the local government actually took actions to like restrain them and to take them off the streets for a bit until they were properly regulated. Like, I think it was a really interesting, um, action, like a really interesting development that went along that, that happened there. Um, and that we see with a number of these technologies, especially more recently. Um, but you know, we can see it with, with a ton of different things. Like I remember the stories of, um, people who were opposed to how they were trying to, um, make it so you could book like public space in the parks and, and all of this sort of stuff. And there was like a clash between the people who are used to using it in, you know, the, the ways that they always did. And then these new like tech workers who were like, no, we booked it through like this system, this app or whatever. So we should be able to use it how we wanted, even though that's like in, even though that's not the way that it, has been like traditionally used by the people who actually live in like these communities. Right. I think it's interesting to like go back and look at the development of it as you were talking about there, like with the Google bus and with that kind of um, push for this type of transportation. Right. Because early on in the like two thousands, that's really when the whole Tesla story starts to really happen and evolve and grow. That's when Elon Musk gets, you know, kind of buys his way into Tesla effectively. Um, and then, you know, that really starts to take off in the latter part of the first decade of the 2000s in the early 2010s. Um, 
and you know relies on quite a bit of public support and whatnot in order to make it a reality. Um, then you can also look at the ideas around self-driving cars, which also start to evolve around that time. Google is is starting to work on self-driving cars around that same period, um, and you know really starts to announce it more in the early 2010s um, and treats it as though. This is something that is going to evolve really rapidly, going to be everywhere very quickly within five years, Sergey Brin says, and he's heading up the like Google X division at the time that's developing these programs, even though the stories come out later about the problems that existed in those early days. Um, you know, obviously Uber is founded around that period as well. And you, you know, comes out of there, really becomes more popular in the aftermath of the recession in the early part of the 2010s. And there's all of this uh, positive media coverage around it. Um, and, you know, then there's some more ideas that come on later. So like this real period, especially right after the recession and in the years that followed when there was this like really strong narrative that the tech industry was what was going to revive the American economy, was going to be really key to growth. Um, these kind of transportation companies are a real key part of that and growing in that moment. You know, you mentioned the dockless bikes and scooters, you know, they are routinely like thrown into waterways and things like that, right? Like, you know, people hate them. Uh, people largely hate them and they have largely been this failure. Don't throw them in waterways, though. That's really unkind to the fish and the, e and the, the water ecosystems. <laughs> um, but I've also seen pictures in, especially in like China, of like landfills that are filled with like tens of thousands of these dockless bikes and scooters, all of which are e-waste because they all basically have like an iPhone inside them, right? If we're talking about like all the, the rare earth minerals and the silicon and, you know, all, and the batteries and all of that stuff that's in them, it makes them into e-waste. And so it was just like this massive experiment, like very sudden experiment in urban mobility that nobody asked for was completely thrust upon cities around the world. Um, you know, the amount of resources that went into building these dockless bikes and scooters, trans, you know, distributing them, transporting them, running them, uh, and now disposing of them. Like their whole lifestyle or life cycle is this like massive unwanted experiment of just like, just waste and shittiness. I mean, at every, at every aspect, right? It's not just like all the resources that went into building it and all the waste that comes out of it, but it's also like, even when they existed, nobody actually liked them. Nobody used them. They thought, like, I think most people thought these are like, you know, a massive imposition on the city and an eyesore and they're in, in there, they're actually inconvenient, like they get in the way um, and, and, and so on. So, I mean, I think just a, a, a really perfect example of, uh, of the kind of like Silicon Valley mode of like disrupting transportation um, is like, you know, do something that nobody asked for, which is going to create a lot of problems, waste a lot of resources, create a lot of waste that then just goes into landfills, um, expend God knows how much uh, capital um, that, that could have been devoted to other places. And then, you know, all this over the course of like less than 10 years. And then at the end of it, nobody's held accountable. Nobody, you know, nobody really lost anything in terms of like, you know, their, their wealth or whatever, right? Like, you know, nobody learned any lessons. Uh, you know, the cities didn't learn lessons. The companies didn't learn any lessons. Um, everybody's just a little bit worse 
worse off for it. And then like, and then they just do it all over again with something different. Like that's the model of like disrupting transportation and cities here. Yeah. And you know, those companies really kind of, I don't know, were destroyed like during the pandemic when they had to pull all of those vehicles like off the roads um, because obviously people weren't using them during the pandemic. Um, but you see like companies like Bird are just like totally collapsing now. Now that, you know, the interest rates are rising, the cheap money is going away. It doesn't exist for companies like this that don't really have a business model. And I would just say like, I think one of the really interesting things about the whole micromobility experiment, the dockless bikes and scooters, is that this was like a tech idea for transportation that didn't come from like the United States from Silicon Valley, it was an idea that was imported from China because China did it first, like a year or two before the American companies started to really emerge and the European companies as well. Um, and they even started to roll some of the services out in North America and Europe and then slowly pulled them back. Like there was kind of a back and forth. They pulled them back and then they rolled them out again, like as the North American and European companies were starting to go for it. Um, but yeah, like you saw these huge landfills of all of these wasted bikes because they were just like totally disposable. They were not meant to last. And so there was all of this waste when, you know, it would have been much better just to like give people bikes so they could use them more. Um, it would have made so much more sense and people would have been able to use them much longer because people would like take care of their own bike in a way that they wouldn't in these rental services. But the key, I think, is that where it came from China it was a tech solution to transportation that was not focused around the automobile because so many of like the American ones are like, you know, we need to put this new technology in the car and that is going to like revolutionize transportation and it doesn't. And I think that because this one came from China, it was focused around the bike, which is obviously much more common over there, even though there's a ton of cars, like, you know, not, not trying to say that. And so then that was imported to, to the United States. And that is like one of the main kind of tech ideas for transportation that is not focused around the car. And I, I just think it's interesting that it doesn't really emerge from the United States. It emerges from China. Um, and yeah, like the effect of it was just totally useless. Like it was mainly tourists that were using these things or like, you know, your equivalent to a tech worker, not the kind of people who actually need improvements to transportation or need access to active transportation, because in many cases they became quite expensive. And as you said, in China, there were all these ones that were in the landfills that also happened here, or that also happened in the United States um, after Uber sold jump, uh, which was its kind of micromobility division. It sold it to Lime in like a well, I don't know, it kind of paid Lime to take it off of its hands is, I think, a more accurate way to say it. Um, but even after that, it was like, you know, they could have given these bikes away to people who like wanted to use them or they could have rebranded them as Lime. But instead, like right after the deal was done, you saw all these bikes and scooters at the landfills just to be trashed. And people were like, why can't we have them? Like if you don't want them and no, because it was a company, whatever, it all had to be thrown away. So like it was super disposable. And if you actually wanted to like help people and improve access to active mobility, what you'd want to do is like give people subsidies so they can get their own bikes or scooters even, um, or e-bikes, um, or improve like the docked uh, transportation systems that are in a, a number of cities, but not every city. And one of the effects of the dockless systems, because they were so heavily subsidized, even though they were useless, was to actually cause some of these systems to close down, like in cities in the UK where this happened. Um, so I would say it was like a net negative, even though it was sold as a really positive thing. It's the equivalent of Whole Foods throwing away a bunch of food and then putting bleach all over it so nobody can eat it afterwards. <laughs>
one of the things that I liked about the book is though, in the way in which you're guiding people to think about how technological developments are usually rolled out, right? And that, and that, oh, and those opening chapters, those opening bo- moves where you establish how the introduction of automobiles, the introduction of individual mobility, they amount to the, as this massive sort of social engineering project in a sense, right? As opposed to how most people conceive of tech, which is that. Uh, developments are res- in response to people's needs, desires, problems that are already existing, and tech emerges that solves a problem the best. You point out how, no, actually, it's usually advanced by people with enough money to drive through certain developments. You know, I would, I would, I think maybe then, you know, I would love to look at those, those first few chapters because I think that sort of understanding is, is really important, but it's not hammered on, I think even in a lot of the criticisms of tech, where even sometimes it's easy to adopt the idea that these developments are still the result of a company trying to solve a problem as opposed to trying to advance a product um, and say that it will solve something or that these are things in search of problems to solve, right? So like what I think, you know, maybe two parts, what got you to say, I want to ground it in the history of other technological developments, and then two, how that analysis in of itself of looking at tech and, and who's pushing it, right? You know, when you are maybe giving advice to other people who are trying to also remain critical, you know, what are places they should look to or ways they should approach their own analyses so that they stay grounded in, okay, what's actually happening versus here's the narrative uh, some of these companies are trying to push forward. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it was really important to the book to have that aspect like included in it and kind of prefacing the like analysis and investigation of these different tech ideas for transportation. Right. Um, and you know, when I initially kind of thought up the book, it really was like looking at these different modes of transportation that were, or, or ideas for transportation that were pushed on us by the tech industry. Um, and then, you know, through some discussions with my editor, Leo Hollis of Verso, um, you know, it became clear that the history would play an important role in kind of illustrating um, and getting people to think critically about these ideas for transportation, right? not only having that history at the beginning, but then in each of the chapters, having the history on this specific like idea for transportation and how it is not new, how these things have, have been around for a long time, how they've been proposed multiple times by other companies or people or, or what have you, and have been worked on over the course of decades in many cases. Right. Um, and so, yeah, not entirely new things. And, and that was something that we needed to know, but getting back to those first couple chapters, you know, as, as you say, I lay out the history of the automobile to illustrate how, you know, we have these, these notions today of like tech disruption and how these companies are like disrupting so much about our societies when, you know, how much are they really actually disrupting? But when you can look at the automobile and you can really see, like how much that structurally changed how we get around, how we relate to one another within the city, um, you know, how the streets are used, but also how neighborhoods and how um, communities are actually constructed and, and remade for the automobile, right? 
that like recognition really helped me get into okay like who is driving these things why are why are these things taking hold um and what you see is that you know the automobile didn't just succeed because it was a new technology that was rolled out and that people were like oh look it's an automobile i love this thing we all need to drive them now because this is the future this is progress right when the automobile was rolled out in the early 1900s it, you know it started to emerge uh, at the end of the the 1800s it was not like universally beloved. It didn't fit into the society that was already there. The streets were constructed in a certain way with the assumption that, you know, there would be people walking on the streets. There would be people taking bikes. There would be people on the streetcars. There would be people in horse-drawn carriages. It was all these kind of um, low-speed different forms of transportation that were interacting with one another in the same space. And then the automobile enters and it goes faster. It disrupts that norm that previously existed. Um, and, and that's a big change. And then because it went faster, because it disrupted those norms, it started to kill people in like a really alarming way that wasn't, that people weren't used to at the time. And so there were like massive protests and demonstrations and way to draw ways to draw attention to the fact that the automobile was doing these things in the city was killing a lot of people, particularly children and young women, which was obviously very notable. People don't want to see their children killed when they're out like playing in the streets, which was what was somewhat normal, especially on the side streets at those times. It was striking to say in your book, how to see what it would look like if you weren't conditioned to accept that death and the ways in which they resisted it ring, ring from ringing the bells to the cartoons that they tried to push to the messaging. I mean, it, it was just like, they, I, there was a lot of times where you would lay out how they had, they were able to have the moral clarity because it hadn't been yet like assailed by decades of this propaganda. And even when they were future morally, um, you know, cl clear or you know, morally driven campaigns, they still lacked, that sort of vi uh, vision of like, what if we just didn't have kids dying in the street? And instead it was like, what if we had less kids? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like it was really striking to, to read those things. And, and especially those like depictions really come from the work of Peter Norton, who has like a, a great history of this period of the American city and what was happening on the streets. And as you say, like people ringing the bells when people would die to illustrate like how many people were being killed on the streets, um, you know, kind of, sessions within schools to illustrate children on how like dangerous the automobile was um funeral processions that were designed to be like a spectacle to illustrate like these are the people being killed by the automobile um propaganda to to call the car the modern moloch or to draw attention to how you know people were being killed by it like there was there was a poster that i remember um and it was like a, a child asking her mother like where's where's daddy and like daddy had been killed by an automobile, so he wasn't coming home. So like just these really kind of visceral um, means to make people react to the fact that the automobile had entered, that it wasn't normal, that it, it was against the social norms that people were used to. And especially at this moment was benefiting like a, a higher class of individual, like a, a you know, well-off, wealthy people, not the general public. They were not having access to the automobile in this period in particular. Um, and so all of this death was happening to a particular segment of the population, while another segment was benefiting from the speed and, you know, the kind of um, freedom, quote-unquote, that was being offered by the automobile. You know, obviously our, our cities were remade for it. Why is that? Because there were, you know, interests that wanted that to happen, that saw how it would be very beneficial 
if our streets were remade, if our communities were remade to force us to use the automobile. Um, and so that's obviously the auto companies. It's the various suppliers to the automobile companies like rubber companies and whatnot, um, oil companies that were fueling up these vehicles because after a competition in the early part of the 1900s between um, battery electric vehicles, internal combustion vehicles, and steam engine vehicles, it was the internal combustion vehicle driven by fossil fuels that was the one that ultimately won out. So those were kind of the key interests that were around the automobile. But then over time, as it transformed more, as society was remade, there were construction interests because they were going to be building all the roads and they were going to be building the new suburban neighborhoods. And eventually labor interests were interested as well because that would mean there would be jobs for particular people at particular companies, right? And so there was this whole kind of... uh, uh, various groups and interests that aligned around the automobile that saw how the automobile could benefit them regardless of you know what it meant for the larger societies and the bigger impacts that it would have would be and of course those weren't obvious at the moment either like it was hard to predict the smog that was going to come of it how it would cause climate change you could certainly see the deaths but there were other aspects of it that you couldn't really know in that period and a lot of those early ideas were not like the automobile is going to take over everything but rather the automobile is going to be there and you're still going to have your alternatives but then over time the alternatives disappear and are taken away as well. So everyone is just reliant on the automobile. Um, And so, yeah, you know, I think it is illustrative, particularly when we're thinking about transportation, but also like the larger kind of um, pushing of technologies on us to see what is actually happening in the case of the automobile. And then, of course, you know, as I say, I have a chapter after that that looks specifically at the tech industry and how um, you know, its technologies are not just responding to needs or or whatnot, but are really driven by a certain idea of society and technology and how we actually solve problems. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really impossible to uh, understate how much we live in a post-vehicular world now. Like, you know, for as much as Silicon Valley wants to talk about you know, disruption, right? And like transformation and nothing will ever be the same after, you know, my software as a service enters the market. You know, it's never been like this before and it'll never be the same after. Like all of that is baby shit compared to the way (laughs) that like, like automobiles and, you know, particularly private automobiles, like truly transformed everything right like like our lives became not just transformed by this technology and the and the of course the the absolutely massive like world scale like socio-technical socio-technical systems that go into creating and running and maintaining uh these these things um but like you know this wasn't just a transformation like we were really like reconfigured um, to live according to the automobile's needs and, and by extension, the needs of the automobile and fossil fuel industry, um, for profit and for selling stuff. Uh, I, I think one of the things that really crystallizes this and it gets to a point, it, to the point that Ed brought up as well around like what has now become normalized. And at that, you know, at that, at that time, a hundred years ago was like, you know, extreme, extremely not normal. Um, all of the death and, and these, the like raging machines, these modern Moloks. I like that. I, I, I like that, you know, um, there, there were posters a hundred years ago, you know, as well as, as well as today. Um, but like, uh, I think one thing that really encapsulates this is the story of jaywalking. And, and I think that there's a, so maybe lay out 
that that history of jaywalking and then make that connection to how I think very similar kinds of debates and recommendations uh, and and forceful uh, assert you know assertions are being rolled out now around autonomous mobility the kind of like modern jaywalking right that like we need to reconfigure our lives and society and cities for the autonomous car so maybe trace that history that 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 through thread there yeah no absolutely it's it's really important right because it's not only the physical reconstruction of the city to make the automobile something that people accept and are used to and and are reliant on really but there is also like the social reconstruction as peter norton says in in his book and his work and that's that's really important as well and and that gets to the point about the jaywalking right because it's not just about changing the city changing the streets it's also about changing the way that people think about the city and the streets in a way that serves these interests and and these capitalists, right? Um, and the jaywalking is a key piece of that because as I was saying, what was normal back then was for people to be able to walk in the streets and for it not to be an issue. You didn't need to walk at specific designated spaces. Um, you could just cross where you know it felt normal for you and you could navigate the other kind of slow forms of transportation that were happening around you. There were even like um, sellers like on the side of the streets, like you know, little people in their in their kind of carriages selling things. And it was not unusual for people to like mill around those and buy things as, you know. Uh, other people in carriages and streetcars and what have you were passing by. Um, in order to make the automobile a thing, in order to have it actually work, what you had to do was get those pedestrians off the street. And that's where the idea of jaywalking is effectively invented and sold to the public. And, it, and one of the um, important industries that is key to making that possible in collaboration with the automotive companies is really the media, right? And we see this long-running relationship between the automotive interests and between the newspapers and, and you know, the more developed media, I guess, over time as, as things change, um, because the auto industry has a lot of ad dollars. It spends a lot to advertise its product. And so those revenues are really important for the newspapers and the newspapers become important um, contributors to creating you know, the automotive society and changing the way that people think about the automobile. And so the idea of the jaywalker is created to be like this kind of uh, low class kind of hick, as we might call it, um, because they don't understand the norms of the city, which is that you don't cross wherever you want because you know, that doesn't make sense. You cross at these designated areas. And if you don't do that, uh, you just don't understand how to live in an urban environment. You need to understand this to keep yourself safe. And this gets rolled out over time is pushed by the auto companies is pushed by the police, of course, um, because, you know, an another thing that people I think often don't think about is how the creation of the automotive society also um, gives the police a big opportunity to like expand their role within the city and within society in enforcing the new norms of the automobile and of automobility. Um, and then the newspapers are a key piece of changing the way that we think about the streets, the cities, forms of transportation by pushing the jaywalking myth, but also by reframing stories around car crashes and um, deaths on the street 
to make it so that the pedestrian is framed as the one that is kind of responsible for that or should have known better, should not have been in the street so that they wouldn't have been hit by the car in the first place. And the driver is kind of reframed as the car. So a car hits someone instead of a driver hitting someone. And so there's this, this big um, shift that happens over time to make people think about the car and the automobile and safety and you know what it means to live in a city in an entirely different way. And that gets you know, that gets developed over the course of a number of decades, but really begins in the 1920s and 1930s. And that is kind of the precursor to the changing of a number of laws and regulations. Because at the time, if you had killed somebody with your car, you would have been a murderer. Um, But obviously, we generally don't think about people who kill people in their cars today, um, because there has been this like big shift in how we think about things and how these things have been normalized over time. And so then, you know, to kind of link that to what's happening now. Obviously, in the past decade, we have had self-driving cars and the idea of the self-driving car really being pushed on us as something that is realizable, something that is desirable within the city, that we should want um, automobiles to be taken over by computers, and that will make them more efficient, will make them better, will make them more reliable, um, and will solve all of these problems that we have with the transportation system by making them more accessible, by making it cheaper to access transportation, by serving people who are underserved by transportation, all of these big promises that were made. And what we can see is that over time, um, there is a realization that the companies themselves and the technologies are not going to develop as quickly as people like Sergey Brin or Elon Musk thought they were going to. Um, and the vehicle is not going to be able to respond in all of these different situations that a level five autonomous vehicle, which is supposed to be the one that can navigate in any situation, in any weather event, um, you know, can navigate anything effectively. Um, and it seems very unlikely that that is ever going to arrive. And so one of the solutions to that or one of the ways to get around that problem, if we do want to realize this future where computers are driving all of our cars, is then to change the behavior of the people around the cars. Um, and so there have been like a ton of proposals that you see every now and then um, and that that occasionally like slip out from some of these uh, real supporters of autonomous vehicles. Of course, I'll note that there are other people who support autonomous vehicles who would say like, this isn't serious. This is not something that we actually want to do. This is not something that will be necessary. Um, but then you look at other people who say that we should have everyone wearing like a little kind of receptor or whatnot so that the vehicle can detect where people are without its like cameras and whatnot needing to pick them up, especially in like dark environments. And so imagine like just to feel safe going out of your home and always having to make sure that like your little um, detector is with you so that the, the autonomous vehicle will not like run you down on the street, um, which is pretty dystopian. And then, of course, there have been suggestions for, like, gates at the crosswalk. So, like, when it's time, it will finally open and allow the pedestrians to go. I don't think that one is really... um, taken seriously so much like i don't think people would go for that those do exist in some places yeah. but they're, they they do exist in some places but they're like really rare and it's usually a like like a particularly dangerous and blind corner like i've seen them in brisbane for example but yeah to have that be like every crosswalk is is quite absurd yeah. to like real i mean the the highway is already like a no man's like a no man's land but to really emphasize that like you are entering the terror dome uh if you if you if you step into the street (laughs) Uh, every time every time i go to vancouver bc 
we always remark about how the Canadians are always waiting for the, the uh, crosswalk to change, but there's always that one person who goes before the crosswalk changes. And we call that the Canadian microaggression. <laughs> that that would be me. <laughs> I, I I tend to do that. I, I just yeah, want to you know, say real real quick. Uh, I I you know the idea of having like a receiver that you have to wear to go out, so an autonomous car can see you and doesn't hit you. Like I think you know to play like if we if we play devil's advocate on the, it can be like what's the big deal, right? Like like that's surely a minor inconvenience. Like you know you got your phone, wallet, keys, and like car receiver on you at all times your tesla rfid always yeah yeah like you know you have it clipped to your your keys like what's the big deal here right and i think that under what that does is it it, it looks at a uh, a kind of it looks at it at that level of like what's the convenience or inconvenience of having that and misses the larger um like reconfiguration again of responsibility where now it's it's your responsibility to not get hit by all of these autonomous cars that are zipping around the city, right? And like, if you forgot your uh, receiver and you get hit, then maybe an insurance company, uh, you know, says that you were actually liable because you weren't taking the necessary steps to um, to not get hit, right? Like we all we all signed this social contract. We all know what what the deal is here, and so it, it, it very uh, subtly. Um, shifts again responsibility uh, morally, legally um, onto you know from one from one entity onto another entity, right? It's another one of those kinds of ways. Uh, you know, Ed was talking about the normalization, and you talk about this in your book. Like that's another one of those ways that like a normalization of a different form of social relationship, a different form of society and urban life um, happens. Like might not be as sudden uh, uh, or, 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 or major as, you know, other ways. But at the same time, again, I think that's how normalization happens. It's not the like throwing you into a pot of boiling water. It's the frog in a, wa- in a, in a pot of water that's already warming up and warming up. And before you know it, it's boiling. Paris, in your experience, have you come across any, any research uh, about the number of pedestrians that have been hit by not just the autonomous vehicles, but just vehicles in general, because the whole idea of like having markers, people wearing markers just sounds, it sounds stupid and fruitless because in the city I live in, and and in, of course in Seattle, which is nearby has a very large, like houseless population. And a lot of the folks that get hit by cars are usually people in mental distress or some type of state um, where they're not, they don't have their bearings. And they're usually, you know, in most cases, when you read about them in the paper or on, online, it's a, a houseless person. A houseless person isn't going to have a phone or a transmitter. So what what are they just essentially, is it just roadkill? Like so much roadkill for, you know, for the auto industry to just be like, well, you know, they were, they were houseless. They were in, insignificant human beings. So whatever. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because like the, one prominent example that we have of a pedestrian being killed by an autonomous vehicle, which is the Uber crash in March of 2018, was someone who was houseless, um, you know, wasn't 
living in a in a permanent place um, was al- also had like a low level of drugs in their system. So it's exactly the kind of person that even if you did require everyone to have their little like receiver for the autonomous vehicle to detect you, um, it's very unlikely that this person would have had one of those, right? And that's not to like try to place blame on that person because I don't like it very much wasn't their fault that they were hit by this autonomous vehicle um, that we're all told like it's supposed to know where it's going and what it's picking up. Um, I would say like to your broader question, there is a real problem right now, especially when we look at what's happening in the United States. The number of pedestrian deaths on the road have been increasing um, in recent years and have actually seen a significant uptick since 2020 and in 2021 as well. Um, like significant growth to the degree that like it's back to death figures from the 1990s. Um, and this is a serious problem, right? Um, because that means there's more and more people who are dying on the roads at a moment when we're constantly told not only that technology is supposed to be making the road safer by putting all these new technologies in these cars, not even autonomous driving technologies, but just the assistant uh, assisted driving technologies, the lane keeping technologies, all these so, all these sorts of things that are supposed to be making the road safer. But actually, we're seeing deaths rise significantly um, in recent years. Um, on top of that, we also have companies like Apple and Google, which are pushing these, um, what would you say, like displays for the vehicles that have more and more things like crowded all over the, the front of them. Like Tesla was the real company that started to push this with like the big kind of rectangular tablets in the center sorry, in the center of the of the vehicle um, that moved all of the like buttons and, and knobs and whatnot to control everything in your vehicle onto the touchscreen. So you lost that tactile feedback. And now companies like Apple are pushing to expand that even further. So like the your whole dash is a big screen with a ton of like information that you really don't need while you're driving. And there are already studies that showed that the like initial CarPlay systems that were just your small screen in the dash still had a bunch of buttons. Your initial CarPlay and Android Auto were already Uh, distracting people and making driving less safe. And so expanding those kinds of screens, um, I think, makes things even more dangerous because then, you know, people are even more distracted and it just feels like an innovation that's designed for the assumption that autonomous vehicles are arriving or are here when actually we know that they're not. And so things are getting less safe as a result. And I would just say like a final point on this is that it's not just all about technologies that are being added to the vehicle, right? Another serious problem that is decades in the making is how vehicles have been just getting larger and larger. These massive SUVs, these massive trucks, cars, even the sedans that are left on the roads are getting bigger and bigger. Um, and those are incredibly dangerous for people because the front ends on these vehicles, especially the SUVs and the trucks, are higher. And that means that they hit people higher up on their bodies. Um, and that means that the chances that they die when they're struck are even higher. And so what we have now, what we're you know being sold as a solution to this is that, oh, there's just new technologies that are going to make it better. Or, oh, we're going to have electric vehicles now instead of regular vehicles. Electric vehicles are even heavier than internal combustion vehicles. So even you know bigger chance that you're going to hurt or kill somebody if you hit them with an electric vehicle, if you're not changing the larger design. So, you know, the 
the reliance on the automobile and the focus on the automobile as key to the transportation system is the fundamental problem, but it's not the one that you know all of these interests that are benefiting from the automobile want us to address. Do you think there's enough cobalt salt in the world to put out all the uh, all the Teslas that catch on fire? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm guessing no. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it it it's a serious problem, right? And I think I think this is one of just one of the many issues with like the push to replace every vehicle with an electric vehicle is that there's so many things that we're not considering like the longer term impacts of. And I think the the electric vehicles catching on fire is another one. And I'd even say like. I'm a big fan of e-bikes. I think that they have a really important part to play in encouraging more people to use bikes instead of cars and whatnot. Um, but I also think that we need to have plan- plans in place for like all the little batteries on all of those little vehicles and what's going to happen if they're damaged or explode and stuff like that. Make sure that they are um, like good quality batteries, all those sorts of things, because very quickly there's going to be like a lot more batteries everywhere um, in the transportation system and yeah, I just think, you know, we need to plan a bit better for that instead of just waiting until it happens and being like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things I was I was looking over and thinking about in, in your book is also how, you know, as you talk about there, just, I don't know, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of historical baggage coming in and influencing how people think. There's a lot of interest, self-interested and self-dealing people. There's a lot of larger market or capitalist incentives. There's a lot of delusion, right? You know, so when we're dealing with something this large with this many asset or this many facets, and the momentum is to create the worst possible uh, vision of uh, of technology embedded in our lives and mediating or structuring or informing or limiting or deploying us in certain ways, relations uh, and connections with one another, right? Then you know, and you talk about this a bit in the book, but like you know, for uh, I, if people don't get it before they listen to the episode, I mean, where then does that lead us in looking at what to do and where to chisel at and how to, how to focus the energy? Is it, is it, do we have to begin with understanding the problem and figuring out what parts of the structure are weakest? Is there a way to build alternatives out? Do do we have to work within the system they've already created? Are some opportunities gone forever to us? It's, it's a tough question, and I feel like it's a bit of all of it, like depending on the way that you want to approach it. Like, I think that there are definitely ways that you can try to build alternatives, even with what exists. I think that there are a lot of barriers to them succeeding just because of the situation that we're in and, you know, the way that the economy is structured, the way that incentives are structured. Um, you know, I think that small alternatives are really going to have a tough time competing with, um, you know, the, the powerful companies that control so many of this right now. For me, like informed by the history of the transportation system and how things have evolved in the past and ha- even how like the, the tech industry itself was created and developed over time, you know, it, it's really hard to ignore. And I feel like a lot of our discussions today do ignore especially if you're if you're focused on what people in tech are saying and how they kind of frame the problem and frame the solution is really ignoring the role of the state like 
Yes, the auto companies pushed for you know the changing how our cities work, changing how the transportation system work in a way that served them, but they would never have been able to do it on their own if they didn't have the backing of the state in order to rearrange everything, in order to change regulations, in order to um, subsidize the creation of all of this infrastructure, in order to um, set the terms of mortgage financing and how you could get your mortgages to ensure that it preferenced suburban living over, you know, living in a city that was more transit oriented and all these sorts of things, right? And and this goes into the history of redlining and the types of communities that they wanted to promote and the types of people who they wanted to deny mortgages to, Um, you know, but that's one piece of like a larger kind of idea for how the city was going to work and how they change regulations and whatnot. If you look at all the money that was poured into building out the road system, building out the um, the interstate highway system in the United States as well. That was a $500 billion project that was financed by the state um, in order to remake, you know, how how everyone lived, how everyone drove or, or you know, moved around. So the state... It takes tens of billions, if not hundreds, to maintain, right? To, absolutely, yeah. It's like a crazy amount of money to maintain all these roads all around the United States and, let, let's be real, the world um, every every year, right? Um, and that's just something that's like picked up through general taxation that we don't really think about because we depend on it. But then if you think about like the budget for the transit system, it's like, oh, but I don't use that. Who uses that? Like, should we really be spending money on this? This doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and that's just to say that you know, the state is really key. The state um, sets the structure and, and sets the foundation for all of these things. The state makes automobility and suburbanization possible. It subsidizes it. It puts in the regulations that are favorable for it. And if we think about the tech industry itself, the state is key to building Silicon Valley, even though they write even though they like to write that out of their history and their narrative, right? Silicon Valley is born from all of the federal funding that go into San Francisco and the Bay Area during World War II and then through the Cold War in order to compete with the Nazis and then the Soviet Union. Um, and then even, even after that like kind of heyday period with all this money going in, there's still a ton of money going into universities. In the 70s, you have a ton of money going in because the Japanese are the new kind of... Um, threat with their electronics industry. And so that needs to be subsidized by the government. And there's still a ton of money, a ton of public money that flows into Silicon Valley, all these people in these companies. Look at Elon Musk's SpaceX, look at Blue Origin. They're constantly competing for these public contracts. The state is key to making all of these things possible. And so if we think about how we actually change the way that you know technology is created, the way that these things are deployed on us, what kind of ideas are actually driving their development and the kind of society that we're creating. I think you do, even though like a lot of the discourse around technology likes to avoid the state and the role that the state plays, I think the state is key. It's like, it's a key site of struggle for determining the way that things work in the future and the way that we build things, particularly with the transportation system. Um, And so, you know, that that requires, I think, a greater focus on what the state is actually doing and how we change its focus in order to realize um, these types of technology or transportation that we actually want to see um, and and organizing to make that happen. And certainly, I'm not the person to tell people um, exactly what they need to do to achieve that because I think it's going to be a, a tough fight. But still, I you know I think without recognizing the role of the state, you you completely miss it, and um, you know it's key. Yeah, because it creates this vacuum for 
private planning and private capital to step in. And I mean, this is, you know, this is the, uh, the, the, the bread and butter of Elon Musk, right? Is to sell things like the Hyperloop, sell things like, you know, the boring company to, uh, Vegas or Miami or whoever, right? Um, uh, as a, as a solution that all the state, all, all the government has to do is, uh, you know, tender the bid, right? They just have to, you know, give Elon Musk the contract for it and then he'll step in and, and create, uh, uh, you know, the, the future of transportation, which looks like a tunnel. Uh, that is, you know, barely big enough to fit one Tesla, uh, and it can, and you can only go one way in that tunnel, and you have to wait, you know, for a Tesla going 30 miles an hour to reach the other end before the other Tesla going 30 miles an hour can enter the tunnel to go the other way. Uh, that's the future of transportation. It's great, um, but you know, but the, the alternative here is exactly what you've been laying out, where you know, this is a, this is an area. It requires a lot of planning. It requires a lot of capital, but it cannot be private planning. It cannot be private capital. It needs to be state planning. It needs to be state capital because those two things, those two entities, not only have different different powers and uh, and so on, but they nominally should be serving different interests as well, right? And and when we're talking about transportation, the real disease, uh, you know, ideologically that that ruins a lot of this is we think about transportation as an individual thing, right? It's it's, it's me in my you know six person uh, six seater car um, driving to work by myself with all the other people in their six seater cars driving to work by themselves, right? Like like that's how we think about transportation versus you know the all of us in a on on trains and trams and buses and you know uh, a a mass array of different options that go you know you know you got arteries and you know capillary systems right like all of this kind of thing that the that roads are already built that way and it's like we have all this sunk cost built into um all of this road infrastructure even though at least in the U.S. in particular, a lot of that shit is really old and falling apart. And it would probably be more cost effective to just rip it all up and do something different rather than actually spend the money that, you know, the um, the Association of Civil and Transport Engineers tells us every year that, you know, you got an F minus grade and it's going to cost this much to like, you know, uh, redo and maintain the roads. It's like, it would probably be cheaper just to rip all that shit up and put in a totally different transportation system. Um, and that's really where we're at here, right? Like we're at this turning point where it's not just like, well, it's cheaper and convenient to just keep going the way that we're already going. You know, we've got this inertia. We really are at this inflection point where it's like, we either do nothing and then all of the shit just like disintegrates under our feet and then you have no transportation system very soon. Um, or you have to spend a lot of money and time and planning and resources and labor to either uh, redo it all so we can keep going the way that we're going with private cars, but now sometimes they're like, you know, level three autonomy or whatever. Um, but not all of them, only some of them, right? It's going to be mixed. Or we spend 
just you know maybe just as much of that money, time, resources, labor, and so on to go a totally different direction with our transportation system, and and that requires a little bit of vision. It requires a little bit of planning um, from the state rather than just allowing that that to be monopolized by Silicon Valley. We're coming up at the end of, of part one. We got so much more to talk about with Paris. Uh, and, and I think we're going to spill into a, uh, the premium episode with some of this. But I, I want to give you a last word here, Paris. Could you maybe lay out a little bit more about, you know, leave us on as your last chapter does, you know, toward a better transport future. Leave us on a little bit of, uh, you know, here's what we can and here's what we should do about it note. Um, and then, and then we'll we'll get into a lot more of your analysis. Your your book does a lot of history, which I really love because we really need to understand that history and and to understand the future. Um, but we'll get into a lot more of that in the in the in the in the premium episode. But yeah, leave us leave us with some of what you uh, with with the kind of cliff notes on your last chapter. Absolutely, and and also to pick up on what you were saying, right? I think. One of the problems we face is that obviously, you know, we're three or four decades into this neoliberal project. And so the state doesn't actually like to do big things or, you know, really has to be pushed hard. We can see during the coronavirus pandemic that they can do big things if, if they're forced to, especially in some countries. Um, but there's generally uh, not a willingness to do that. And so they would rather, you know, let the private market set you know, the standards set the terms of what is actually going to happen, do their little bit to help that move along, not actually do any kind of structural change. And the problem as you identify there, when you're looking at someone like Musk, is Musk then kind of seizes the power to be the private planner, you know, and he's certainly not the only one, but they kind of set the direction or set the idea of what the state should actually be doing. Um, and so, you know, I don't think I think it's wrong to say he alone is responsible for the push for electric vehicles right now. Um, but you know, he helps to legitimize that path or, or, or the movement in that direction. And the idea that the way that we solve transportation's contribution to climate change is through electric vehicles instead of through transit or something like that. So it's very much keeping with a very status quo kind of idea of transportation and just swapping one element of it, you know, the, the kind of energy that powers the actual vehicle. And we can see that with space and so many other things that he's pushing forward. And so these powerful figures in Silicon Valley are able to set the priorities for the state because the state has no interest in actually doing that on its own. And so, you know, then, as you say, to kind of wrap it up, I would say that, you know, what we really do need is the state to actually start to enforce some kind of vision for a different future of transportation. And certainly that vision is going to have, have to come from us. And we are going to have to build the power to have the state kind of implemented and, and adopt it. And certainly that is recognizing that the transportation system is a collective system. As you're saying, it's not just all of us individuals. Um, it is a collective thing that actually has to work for all of us. And so instead of having each one of us in our own little electric vehicle or our own little autonomous pod, what we need is a transportation system that is really built around 
much, much better public transportation, much better kind of train system to link things up, hopefully get people out of planes where that's possible, um, but also has much better cycling infrastructure so people can get out of cars and, you know, take their bikes or their e-bikes instead but also recognizing how those things also require a different kind of community. The automobile required the suburban community and a a more collective transportation system that's focused around um, cycling, transit, walking is going to require a different kind of community. And we need to recognize that that's not just about changing the transportation system, but a changing like the housing system and so much else. Because if you just improve transportation and then all the property values go up and people are priced out of those neighborhoods, like that's not going to work either. So yes, transportation is one piece of it, but then there's this whole other piece that is important and that you have to deal with as well. Absolutely. I would I would be remiss and a bad partner as well. You mentioned pod, which is like a trigger phrase for me because my my, <laughs> my partner, who's an anthropologist, Emma Quilty, uh, it, it does a lot of work on the kind of visions and experiences of the future of transport. And she's currently writing a really great paper on this idea uh, of this kind of archetypal figure that she calls pod man, um, which is like, uh, present throughout all of these different consulting reports and Silicon Valley, you know, visions and, and, and startups and white papers of essentially that, like, you know, uh, the, you know, pod man is this, is this, you know, the, uh, a kind of a American psycho type figure, right. Of like, you know, uh, you know, upper middle class, you know, commuting to work in his luxury um, individual autonomous pod uh, where, you know, he's taking meetings, he's working out, you know, he's watching Netflix all on this, all in this pod, uh, which, you know, is is commuting, recreation, all things in one. And, you know, and and the idea is that everybody has this, like, this, this luxury pod um, that is the future of mobility. And it's just absolutely insane how common different forms of that vision and that archetype exist across all of the consultancies, across so many of the Silicon Valley ideas of what transportation looks like. And it's absolutely hell. It is hell on earth to think, I mean, one, that will never happen. But two, uh, uh, how like Silicon Valley to, to turn something that is so clearly a form of hell um, and then try to market it as a form of utopia, right? Like, th- it's classic, classic bullshit. Absolutely. No, it's exactly what they always do. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, this has been a really, uh, really great conversation, and we've got so much more to dig into. Um, because I do want, I do want to, um, in the you know, in the in the premium episode, dig into some of the things around electric vehicles as well, um, because these things are not new. You know, uh, you know, we talked about. I, I mentioned Elon Musk at the top of the show, and I'll bookend it by saying, you know, Elon Musk has become, you know, the 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 wealthiest person you know on earth um in large part through the mark his 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 position as a a kind of circus barker um for tesla right you know that which is the going to be the future of electric autonomous vehicles but you know of course these things did not come out of nowhere 
They did not. They definitely did not come out of Elon Musk's mind. Uh, my man did nothing for that, right? Except be a good <laughs> marketer. But you know, you we there's been some hints throughout our conversation that there were all these different pathways that we could have gone down over the last um, hundred plus years of automobility. Uh, and, and, you know, electric vehicles has been one of these pathways that has emerged as a possibility, you know, every, every, de- every decade or two since the invention of the car, um, you know, and, and for different reasons, we've not gone down that road or we've gone down that road in different ways, i.e. like we are now with Tesla, right? And so I think that's just a teaser for listeners. Uh, I, I want to trace that history of the electric vehicle with Paris um, to get the real story, to dig into it more, pick up, order Paris's book, Road to Nowhere, what Silicon Valley gets wrong about the future of transportation from Verso Books. It's a fantastic book. If you've ever listened to Paris talk, if you've ever read any of Paris's writing, then you'll know it's uh, it's both at once easy breezy reading but also really critical and really nuanced analysis lots of history lots of great stories lots of you know really good grounding that then zooms out into bigger points it's a it's a fantastic book um in a, in a you know in a just world that would be the book instead of a Malcolm Gladwell bestseller at Hudson News that people would be picking up in the airport um because it, it <laughs> I, I I told Paris when I read a draft of the book that it reminded me of all the best parts of a like the structure and style of a Gladwell book where it's like really well written really grounded really easy to get through but with none of the uh stupidity uh or or naivete of a Gladwell book I actually did the research and wrote a great yeah. book. Absolutely. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Actually, did <laughs> just write in a Facebook newsletter about running around with the uh, autonomous vehicles in uh, Phoenix and how incredible they are. And <laughs> <laughs> this is the future, man. This is yeah. the future. We didn't kill a single person. You could run in front of it; it'll just stop. Yeah, <laughs> we did a whole episode reading that, <laughs> reading that Facebook newsletter. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, all right, well. Check out Paris's book. Also, find us uh, for, for part two of this conversation with Paris on patreon.com slash this machine kills, um, where you can get this episode and another episode every single week for just $5 a month, um, a bargain at any price. Uh, so find us there, or we'll see you next week on the free feed. Until then, later. later.